This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. You can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. You have to decide who you really are. Are you part of the 9,700 who, when asked to get serious about the battle, went home? Are you part of the 22,000 who, when they were asked to be brave and courageous, said that's too much to ask and went their own way? Or are you part of the 300 who said, I'm in, no matter what it costs me? Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill, and this is Today with Jeff Vines. Are you one of the 300? That's Pastor Jeff's question for us in today's episode. We've reached the end of our series from Judges, chapters 6 and 7, looking at the story of Gideon. Pastor Jeff's been exploring seven resolutions we find in these verses. And today we finish his message and the whole series with this question. Are you one of the 300? Here's Pastor Jeff. There is a history of pandemics, by the way, folks. Life is cyclical. There have been many world pandemics, and through every pandemic, there is what we call a fourth turning. That is, there are things that happen as a result of every worldwide pandemic and has been true since the beginning of time. There's an economic reset. There's an evaluation of priorities. There is a love for family. And the fourth is there's always a spiritual revival. Because suddenly you realize how fragile this life is. And you start changing what you think about and what you do and what's important to you. And that's exactly what's happening around this place right now. If you can see the young adults When they come together, as I've said numerous times, say, Pastor Jeff, you're talking a lot about them these days. I am because I'm just so popped. They're praying for each other. Their hands raised in worship. They got a lot more energy than you. Man, they're on their feet. They are ready to go. You can tell they want to live their lives. They're not buying the lie. They are not buying the lie. And it impresses me that they have that much wisdom to say, no, what the world is selling, I ain't buying. There's got to be something of foundation, of eternity. It's happening among our high schoolers, among our men in the church who are just ready, willing, and waiting. Among our women, they're locked and loaded. Can I say that? Probably not, but I just did. (laughs) Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross. The cross is all about giving up power, pouring out resources, and serving. When Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period, the radical message of sin and grace and the cross can become muted or even lost. Then Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion, one that's for respectable people who try to be good. Everywhere I go, I am meeting this type of Christian, and it's concerning me. Just met another one this week. Yeah, I'm a Christ, I'm a Christian. Oh, really? That's great. And then we start talking, and I realize, no, you're not. You say, are you judging? No. This person has no respect for the Bible, no respect for the authority of God's Word. They are governed and ruled by the Word, by the political system. And the call for sacrifice is a foreign idea. Because in the West, you start to think somehow that everything ought to be easy, including Christianity. And this is a warning to every Christ follower in affluent places. (laughs) 
In a way, it's not your fault. But in another way, it is. It's the environment in which we've been reared. You and I think that things should come easy because they always have. We believe that we're entitled to whatever it is we want. We expect, think about it, we expect to travel, we expect to go on a vacation, we expect to see the world, we expect to have expendable income and expendable time, and if we don't, we demand our rights. Which is why, now be careful, be careful now, which is why a government that plays Santa Claus is very popular right now. Everybody wants a gift. Everybody wants, give me what I need without the hard work because we've been trained to think this way. We hear slogans all the time. You're worth it. You deserve it. You can have anything you want. It's like a friend of mine said lately or recently. He said, I want as much as possible with as little effort as possible. That's my slogan. But Jesus says, unless you pick up your cross every day and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. My non-Christian friends come to me and they'll say something like, you know, Jeff, the only reason you're a Christ follower is because you're too weak mentally to survive a very difficult world. And remember my response is always, you know nothing about Christianity, do you? What do you mean? Do you know how hard it is to follow Jesus? It's not for the faint of heart, man. It's not for the weak-minded. We're told that we got to pray for our enemies. I want to slap them. <laughs> We're told to pray for them. We're told to turn the other cheek. We're told to forgive those who offend us. We're told to give our possessions away and to willingly suffer persecution if it comes to us. In fact, Jesus said, expect it. If they persecuted me, what makes you think they're not coming after you? And the place in the world where Christianity is exploding is where people live like that. Where they live for a kingdom bigger and beyond, better than themselves. So my simple question to you, please, are you one of the 300? If you were there, would you have been chosen? Because you're serious about the battle and through great courage, you're willing to march out into the world and live a Christ-like life. Speak his name with pride, humility, but with a sense of urgency that those far from him must come near. I look back over a file that I have to remind myself of how good I have it. And I think of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, who we've mentioned many times, who rather than seeking a career, promising power and prestige and wealth, sold everything they had, moved to South America and sacrificed everything, including Jim's own life. Because he believed that he was owned by God and bought with a price. And if his life meant that those far from God would come near, then he would gladly give it. Most of us will never be asked to give our lives, at least not now. But you are asked to deny yourself and pick up your cross every day and to follow him. And you're asked to give the best of your resources, the best of your talents and abilities, the best of everything you have go to him because he secured your eternity and your greatest enemy's already been defeated. I think of Corey Ten Boom, that story where she suffered through the horrors of Ravensbrook and Auschwitz with such grace that the women in her barracks 
began to pray, study the Bible, and rejoice even amidst great sorrow. And her statement became quite famous when she said, no pit is so deep that God's love is not deeper still. You can't do that unless you're one of the 300. Do you see why this sermon's hard? But if you walk out of here and you don't ask yourself some pretty serious questions, I'm telling you, Jesus is going to replay this sermon for you when you get to heaven. Why? Rewind the tape. How many times do I have to play this? Tony Campalo relates how a Buddhist monk once told a friend of his that Americans should stop teaching their children to pray if I die before I wake and instead teach him to pray, help me wake before I die. And that's what I'm trying to do in this series. Wake up. You can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. You have to decide who you really are. Are you part of the 9,700 who, when asked to get serious about the battle, went home? Are you part of the 22,000 who, when they were asked to be brave and courageous, said that's too much to ask and went their own way? Or are you part of the 300 who said, I'm in, no matter what it costs me? Now, here's the irony before I end. And I'm serious, only one ending. The irony is that if you give up your life, you end up finding it. So on the, on the outside, it looks like, oh, this is a bad idea. And I so desperately want to get into all those young people's heads and tell them what I now have learned over the course of my life. This is actually not a bad thing. You die to yourself and live for God. You're going to have the adventures of your life. I think of my own life. When I heard the call to go and live in Zimbabwe, yes, a beautiful woman was part of the calling. Nothing wrong with that. I was chasing Robin. I got it. But still, I didn't know if I wanted to leave the comfort and convenience of my life here and go live in Africa. And I went to a mentor of mine, and his first statement to me was this, Jeff, if God is calling you to Zimbabwe, it will be the adventure of a lifetime. Taste and see the Lord is good. I think what my life would have been if I had not decided to courageously follow this calling and go to a land that I was unfamiliar with, take these great risks. I think about what my life would have been if I had never seen the power of Musiotunia, the smoke that thunders in Victoria Falls as the water flows over the Zambezi River down in the valley below. I shudder to think what my life would have been like if I'd never witnessed the sunset over Lake Kariba and the sounds of the elephants and giraffes in the distance. I look back and yes, I've given up a lot, but I realize that man, is what a great adventure. It's like God said, you die to yourself and live for me. It's going to be better than you ever imagined. And it has been. He said, I came to give you the abundant life. What is the abundant life? There's something about living for Christ. Even in the midst of difficult times, you get that revelation and that understanding of who he is. And you realize this is what my soul really wants to connect with God. A follower of Jesus just jumps in, man. And when you hear the voice of God, you respond, even if it costs you. But most of us, for most of our lives, have been walking zombies. Our lives have been about the meaningless passage of time, moving from one point to the next with no reflection, never giving ourselves passionately to any moment. So here is my deep and profound message to you. Stop it! <laughs> Stop it! One of my favorite YouTube videos features a young preacher. He walks out on stage, dressed in the cloth. It's high church. He's weary of his congregation's shortcomings. And he says to his congregation the words that every pastor would like to say to their congregation. 
okay? So he opens the book, and he's going to read from Proverbs, but rather than reading today's reading, the young pastor drops his head onto the podium, grumbles, and he says the following words. I would never say this, but he did. He says, if I may, if I may digress for a moment from my prepared message, I mean it when I say to you, you guys, sometimes you're bad. Okay? Don't be jerks. You're supposed to be good. I'm in my office every day and somebody comes in and they're like, whoops. While doing a little angry shuffle, the pastor screams, don't. Don't. Just stop it. And he singles out one particular congregational member, and he points the finger and says, Dan, what is your deal? Imagine me doing that. Dan, what is your deal? If anybody doesn't know, Dan is the worst. I know I went to seminary, and I'm not supposed to say who the worst is, but Dan, you're the worst. Picking up then and opening his Bible, he says, oh, look, it's Jesus. He says, stop it. Stop what you're doing. He walks off stage, and he says, this is the word of the Lord. Sometimes you just want to come out and say, Stop it. Stop living for your purposes. Stop ignoring Christ. Stop being a fan. Start being a follower. So here's how I want to end. First of all, I want to give you, and I know it's been a different kind of message, but, but you just, you, you've done well through this series. Listen. I have noticed over the course of my life as I struggle with these issues, some strong parallels in the lives of those who have become part of the 300. I'm, a, I'm an avid note taker, either on my phone or on a little pad. I'm always looking at lives and trying to say, what are the commonalities of these lives that change the world? I do the same thing as a pastor. What are the commonalities of prevailing churches? What are the commonalities of pastors who have great influence and really help people far from God come near? I'm always making those lists. It's just a, a, a habit. Let me give you the commonality of people who are part of the 300. This is what I've noticed. And they're not just Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott. They're not just Corey Ten Boom. There are some of you right here in this audience. But let me tell you the commonality. Commonality one, these people have no double-mindedness. They know God is, char is in charge and causes or allows every event into their lives for a purpose greater than themselves. And they know that trying to determine what events God causes and which ones he allows is a futile, meaningless exercise. They believe their response, not the origin, is the determining factor of what God will accomplish through every, every situation. Number two, no fear. When they feel a prompting of the Spirit of God, they move forward in faith. They obey and let God determine the outcome, no matter what it costs them. No fear. Three, no regrets. Since they operate in the wisdom and the power of God, listening distinctly to his voice, regret never factors in. Even when things don't turn out the way they had planned, they heard the voice of God, they do it, and they leave everything up to God. No double-mindedness, God is in charge. No fear, I'll move out when I hear the voice of God. No regrets, whatever I do, even if it costs me greatly, I know I heard the voice of God, God's gonna use it somehow in a way that I can't see. Four, no debilitating depression or anxiety. Now let me be careful here. I said no debilitating depression and anxiety. Depression and anxiety are real. But when you're one of the 300, it doesn't debilitate you. Because you believe the worst thing that could happen is already remedied. Death. So you might die, and yet you shall live. Five, no second guessing. 
once they come to terms with the teaching of Scripture, they move forward in obedience. Neither cultural trends nor popular vote impacts their decision-making. They have resolved to follow Jesus. When you accompany those commonalities with the seven resolutions, your life's going to be different. I'm telling you, folks, a lot of time and effort has gone into this. You take those seven resolutions and you put them on your refrigerator. You put them in the front of your Bible and you read them every day and you decide that you're going to live your life that, like that. I'm telling you, your life is going to change. I, I, I'm not trying to be a, what's the guy's name? Tony Robbins. I'm not trying to be a motivational guy right now. I'm simply telling you, when you get spiritual, scriptural truths into your life, things change. Now, before I stop, Jeff, help me. Can you give me, I mean, I'm going to leave here wondering if I'm going to heaven. Thanks a lot. <clears throat> That's not my intention. How do I know then I'm one of the 300? Okay, listen carefully. You are flawed, and so am I. And even in these resolutions, you're not going to live a perfect life. But you wish you could. Oh, oh, did you hear that? You wish you could, but you're not going to. You know that you need the cross of Jesus Christ to save you from your sin past, present, and future. You're under no illusions. You're going to walk out of here and suddenly you're going to be, oh, I got these resolutions now. I'm never going to fail again. Pastor Jeff is brilliant. He's given me the key to heaven. God bless him. When they play that tape, I'll say, I listened. Okay. No, 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 no. I can't help you. Only Jesus can save you. By his blood, you are forgiven. Can I just say to you, I don't care. I care until, you, until it clicks with you, that you're never going to be good enough. It's just never going to happen. And he has all the goods on you and loves you anyway. And has saved you by his grace. Until that dawns on you, you're not going to get that centralized joy. It's just going to be peripheral times of joy. But here's the key. The best way to describe the Christian life as lived by the 300, the follower, not the fan, is the tightrope illustration to where you walk out and the tightrope represents all the precepts and all the commands and all the goodness of God and all the instructions to you concerning how you are to live. And you walk off the platform and you're just really trying, okay? You're really trying. It takes a lot of balance and you fall. Grace is the safety net below that catches you. So you climb back up and you keep trying to do it. And grace catches you every time. Now, if you're a fan and not a follower, here's what you do. You walk out, wee, and you jump into the net. That's the best way I can describe it. If, if, you, if, you're, if you're a fan, you just walk out, wee. You're not even trying, man. There's no passion in you to live a godly, holy life. You don't really care. You were just looking for a loophole. That is the difference right there. So if you're a person and you say, man, I really want to do this, but I fail sometimes, Pastor Jeff, I'm going to say, welcome to the club. You're in good company. But if you have no passion or intention of ever walking, then there's another problem. You're just a fan. If you're still determining what's right and wrong and not going to the Scripture, you're still a fan. If you think your sexual ethics better than the Bible, you're still just a fan. If you're not working on the discipleship, and there's no prayer life, and there's no intention for a prayer life, no intention for a prayer life, no intention for a devotional life. 
If that's not there and that passion is not in you, you're just a fan, man. And when the tribulation comes, you're going to fade so fast. You're saved by grace through faith, and you know you're saved by grace through faith when the will changes, and you wish you could be perfect, but you know you never will be, and you're thankful for the grace of God. There you go. Now, we're going to stand now. Come on. We're going to stand. We're going to repeat the seven resolutions, but we're not doing it individually. We're doing it collectively. We're saying this, God, hear our commitment to you. We're doing it as a family, not individually. So I'm going to say them, and then I want you to repeat them with me. So I'll speak them, then I'll say the same resolution again, only you'll say it with me. You ready? Okay. Resolution one, we will see the unfortunate events of our lives as faith builders leading to the greatest accomplishments of our lives. Ready? Go. We will see the unfortunate events of our lives as faith builders leading to the greatest accomplishments of our life. Did, I, did they correspond? Okay, fine. It, it happens. That's, I'm sure that that's my, I'm positive I blew something there, but close enough. They're kind of like translation of scripture. They're very similar. They kind of say the same thing, but they got different words. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Resolution number two. Okay, let me read it first. I will assume that God will often require me to do things that seem unreasonable. Resolution three, we will live with the resolution that God will always lead us to do that which brings him the most glory. I will acknowledge that God will always lead me to do that which brings him the most glory. Resolution four, we will acknowledge that God will usually strip us of everything we depend upon other than himself. I will be aware that God will often strip me of everything I depend upon other than himself. Resolution five, we will believe that God will send us encouragement when we grow weary and afraid. I will keep in mind that God will send me encouragement when I grow faint-hearted. Number six, we will trust that God is always working on the other side of the camp. I will live as though God is always working on the other side of the camp. And resolution seven, we will make the commitment to resist the temptation to sit on God's throne. I will resist the temptation to sit on God's throne. If we live by those resolutions, then I'm saying that God will do remarkable things in our lives and in our church, and revival will come. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that our eyes would have been opened, that the time is near, the day is coming. No man knows the day or the hour. We know that only you do. But you told us to look at the signs of the times. And we look around at everything that is occurring right now, and we wonder, but we also wait. And we wait with anticipation. I pray that as a congregation and as individuals, that we together would take serious introspection into our lives and ask this question, am I really in this? Am I just a fan looking from the outside, refusing to give full commitment, refusing to live my life for a purpose greater than myself, stuck in my egocentrism, refusing to live my life for God and his kingdom. And if we are, we would have the courage to know that today is the day of salvation. And in one point in time, I can step out of the kingdom of darkness 
into the kingdom of light. I pray that prayer for every individual and for our church collectively as a whole so that revival may come and we can be a light in this world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden so that those far from you would come near. And everybody said in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.